Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Ann Wenner-Strand, and today we have the great honor of speaking with Dr. Mark Epstein about his newest work, The Trauma of Everyday Life, which was just released in paperback by Penguin Books. First, a brief intro. Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a number of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, Open to Desire, and Psychotherapy Without the Self. He received his undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University and is currently clinical assistant professor in the postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis at New York University. The Trauma of Everyday Life uses the Buddha's biography as a means of exploring the hidden psychodynamic and contemporary relevance of Buddhist thought. Adam Phillips, who was actually interviewed here a few months ago on our podcast, has said of Mark Epstein, he is one of the very few writers who has been able to make the connections between psychoanalysis and Buddhism seem not merely interesting, but somehow riveting and useful. And I uh, certainly would agree with that assessment. So, Without further ado, Mark, I'd like to welcome you to New Books and Psychoanalysis. Hey, thank you so much, Anne. And thank you so much for being here with us today. I've really been very excited about uh, this interview and, you know, immersing myself in, um, in the book and so rich and lucid and there's, there's so much to say and kind of hard to know exactly where to start. But uh, I thought I would start where you did, which is... Um, really that this book it begins with an analysis of the Buddha's life. Um, it's really what I would call a psychobiographical case study. <laughs> would you call it that? Yeah. Okay. You identify a trauma that occurred early in the Buddha's infancy and study how the impact of that trauma informed the Buddha's spiritual journey as well as his teachings and his life. Um, including, you know, incorporating Winnicott's notion of uh, primitive agony. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that and tell the listeners how you came to write this book. Sure. Well, as I think you know, uh, I've been interested in Buddhism for a very long time, and my, my interest in Buddhism actually predated my training as a medical doctor, as a psychiatrist, as a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I have that kind of unusual uh, history of uh, being immersed in Buddhism first, and then uh, all my training, I was kind of looking at the psychotherapeutic tradition through this Buddhist lens. Mm. Um, so, uh, you, you know, I've written all those books that you mentioned. The, this book did begin uh, as an attempt in a kind of Eric Ericksonian uh, tradition to... Uh, uh, be a psychobiography in, in my own way of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. It turned into something else, you know, into a discussion of trauma, but the thread of uh, the early trauma in the Buddha's life is there in the book, and it's a, a, a primary element of the book. And um, uh, it's based on the fact, which, is, which has not been discussed very much, uh, the fact that as far as we know, the, the Buddha was a real person, mm-hmm. and his mother, in all the reports of the actual Buddha's life, his mother died when he was just seven days old. Mm. And uh, uh, that fact, uh, I, I kind of knew it in the back of my mind, but it dawned on me one day when I was teaching a workshop with Professor Robert Thurman of Columbia, who's a friend and colleague, and I, I often teach with him. And he spontaneously pulled out a, uh, a poem by an 18th century Mongolian lama, 
an Enlightenment poem uh, that uh, written right in the aftermath of this Lama's uh, uh, final realization, where he begins, I was like a mad child, long lost my old mother, never could find her, though she was with me always. Hmm. And he compares that feeling of finding the lost mother to the discovery of what the Buddhists call emptiness. And uh, I was filled with uh, a lot of energy when I heard him read this poem, which he had translated. And I started to think about all these connections and thought that maybe I could make something out of the fact that the Buddha's mother died when he was a week old, that that was like a stand-in for all of the early traumas that uh, happen that we uh, maintain in our bodies uh, but can't really remember. Right. And you take us through the book so skillfully in terms of um, looking at what the clinical manifestations are of that early trauma more as a contemporary analyst might do a case study and see where the repetitions occurred and where the dissociation occurred and what the manic defenses are and what the resolution is. And I think you say in the book, although I'm not exactly sure, uh, that this was really one of the great self-analyses of all history was the Buddha's own self-analysis. Yeah, I, I, um, I might not have been quite that firm in my pronouncement, right. but I'm sure. But I'm sure I said something about how uh, um, it's, it, it is uh, uh, one of the first examples that we have historically of a successful self-analysis, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to make the parallels between that and and. Uh, Freud's uh, uh, cocaine uh, uh, influence to self-analysis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you make of the fact that um, even Buddhist scholars, we could say they overlooked, we could say that they unconsciously forgot that um, detail of the Buddha's early history? Um, well, I don't know that they overlooked or forgot okay. as much as they used it in a different way. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the material is there. It's, it's in the um, it's in the early sutras, and uh, even as Buddhism morphed and changed and you know moved from culture to culture, the the reference to the death of the Buddha's mother is maintained. the The original explanation for her death is that um, uh, historically speaking, according to the Buddhist cosmology, you know, um, this is not the only Buddha. This is the Buddha of our era. Mm -hmm. But in previous eras, there are said to have been other Buddhas. And for every Buddha, when he leaves home at the age of 29 in order to seek uh, his liberation, um, it, it was thought to be, that leaving of home was thought to be too painful for the mother, it would be too unkind for the mother. So, in order to protect the mother from the uh, the trauma of uh, his leaving home, they have her die early. Um, so, they uh, there there are pronouncements in the sutras. You know, don't worry about this. She's really better off. She went mm-hmm. to a heaven realm uh, where um, uh, she could watch the progress of her son. And one of the first things that the Buddha does after his enlightenment is uh, he he goes to the heaven realm where his where his mother is and uh, teaches her the uh, the essentials of his psychology, which is which is called the Abhidharma, which mm-hmm. means the ultimate doctrine, the Buddhist psychology. So he he bores her to death uh, with the Buddhist psychology uh, once he has that ability to uh, move between worlds. Hmm. It's very interesting. So you started in your creative process from the from more of the historical and went moved towards the clinical from there. Yeah, in so, you know, in my mind, I was it was all mushed up together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been uh, heavily influenced by the work of Donald Winnicott, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, I think was one of the first uh, in the psychoanalytic tradition to really emphasize the role of the mother, mm-hmm. and also to talk about uh, what we call pre-edible or uh, early relational mm-hmm. kinds of experiences and uh, developmental traumas that come 
when a mother or father is either too intrusive or too abandoning in, in, and there's a, a kind of malattunement in the early relationship. And he's the one who coined the phrase of, of primitive agony, which mm-hmm. I use in the book to talk about some of the disturbances that can happen in the years before language sets in. So, um, you know, when emotional experience is so strong, but a child doesn't have the words to put on the experience, right. when they're really dependent on the parents for help in interpreting affective experience. And um, I knew when I heard that poem of the Mongolian Lama that I wanted to make all these connections between Buddhist thought and uh, psychoanalytic, uh, particularly Winnicottian thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, it uh, it took me the writing of the book to tease out, uh, you know, uh, as many of the connections as uh, as I could find. Right. And you do later on, we'll sort of go through some more of the, the chronology of the book. And um, you talk a lot about how those traumatic, traumatic effects take up residence in the body when there are no words to express um, those primitive agonies. I found that really interesting. Um, yeah, I tell the story in the book of my friend, uh, Sharon Salzberg, who mm-hmm. was on a, uh, long-term meditation retreat with a well-known Burmese, uh, Buddhist teacher. And she was, uh, unaccountably feeling sad in the midst of her retreat, but was kind of ashamed of the feelings of sadness that she was having. She was crying in the privacy of her meditation and so on, but she didn't want to tell the Burmese teacher about it. Yeah. You know, she just kind of hinted. And that, that shame that we uh, often feel about our own emotional distress, you know, that we feel like, oh, that's not the spiritual part of ourselves, that's the psychological part of ourselves, and we kind of yeah. have to hide that. She was acting like that with him, and uh, he sensed enough of it to press her on it, and uh, she finally admitted that she was uh, crying, uh, you know, while she was trying to meditate. And he said something very moving to her, which was, uh, oh, when you're, when you're feeling sad, when you're meditating, you know, you should cry with your whole heart. Mm. And, and I thought that was uh, a nice example of the, um, the merging of the uh, psychotherapeutic and the meditative traditions. You know, we, we, we often want to keep them apart, but for me, they've really been one and the same. Right, and that's something in the clinical encounter we would encourage um, in in a safe, you know, sort of if there's a good good enough relational hold. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit. Um, I actually had been very familiar with your work over the years, um, but I hadn't known about this latest book until I encountered um, an editorial that you wrote in the New York Times last year. Um, and I think it was August of 2013. Yeah, um, that sounds right. Yeah, and it, it was a piece in which you talked about um, your mother's process of grieving your father who had died and um, her sense of not feeling that it was okay to uh, sort of dwell in her grief. And I was wondering if you could say something about that, because I think that there's a very heavy emphasis in the culture on moving on and, you know, sort of rushing back to normal and, you know, going through these very distinct stages of grief and then sort of having it all be done. And I think that's very problematic in your language and the way you wrote it at the time, just really, really spoke to me. Yeah, I think the editorial was called The Trauma of Being Alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was kind of surprised, you know, I had just finished writing the book, and I was having this conversation with my mother, I think it was about four years maybe after my father had died. He, he uh, They had been married for, you know, uh, what seemed like their whole lives, mm-hmm. uh, and he had died of a brain tumor that had kind of crept mm-hmm. up on him from the on the silent uh, uh, from the the silent side of his brain. So he had his cognitive facilities right until the end, but mm-hmm. then 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 he just passed. You know, um, so I was talking to my mother, and she was basically saying like uh, she wasn't over it yet, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
uh, and I was not totally surprised to hear her speaking that way, but surprised enough that I said something to her about, you know, why does it have to be over? Um, that uh, uh, we do have this uh, uh, compulsion, really, in the culture that uh, in the book I call the rush to normal, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, you know, move through the stages of grieving, a la Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, mm-hmm. and, uh, and get to acceptance and then, and then be done with it. And I, um, uh, I said something of that to my, to my mother, uh, and she uh, she responded, you know, kind of reflectively. Well, I, I guess you're right. Uh, it took me about ten years after my first husband died uh, before I really wasn't thinking about him all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I thought, oh, that that's great. Except, uh, you know, first husband. I remember uh, I didn't know you had a first <laughs> husband. Um, there was a time when I was about. To 12 or 14 when we were playing Scrabble and I opened up the Webster's Dictionary uh-huh. to look up a word and there I saw in her handwriting her name written with a different last name and mm. that was the first that I had ever heard of uh, there being a, a, you know, a life before me and before right. my father. Right. Um, so uh, that sense of having to keep secrets um, I think my, my father was uh, um not not necessarily that wasn't something my father necessarily wanted to be reminded of right um in the same way that um that my mother now didn't really want to be reminded of her her um grief over uh, um the loss of my father so right i tried to talk about all of that in that article and uh, pe- people responded that was a very popular piece that yeah I yeah no it was really i think in the book um i'm not sure if it was in the article but one of the quotes uh, that you, or you say in the book, there need be no end to grief. While it is mm-hmm. never static, it is not a single or even a five-stage thing. There is no reason to believe it will disappear for good and no need to judge oneself if it does not. Grief turns over and over. It is vibrant, surprising, and alive just as we are. And I, I found that personally meaningful. Uh, my mother died last year. And... Oh. Um, she was ill for quite some time. And, um, luckily I had some good people to, (laughs) to support me and talk to me and help me understand uh, what my process was. But I found that grieving was something that, um, began to kick in as soon as she was sort of diagnosed and we didn't really know what was going on. And I wouldn't necessarily have known that that's the process I was in, but, there is a way in which grief can be sort of, um, it can happen before the actual event of the death occurs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I like to say when I was um, uh, thinking about this book and writing the book was that if, if we're not suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, we're suffering from pre-traumatic stress mm-hmm. Because uh, that that underlying sense of uh, the inevitability of change and therefore of loss is something that we know, uh, but that we're we're fending off much of the time. Right. When something like you're talking about, when the diagnosis comes, you know, even before there's really any big change in terms of the loss, but you but it's hitting something that you already uh, have been fearing mm-hmm. and. Um, I think one of one of the big uh, points that I'm always trying to make in the bringing together of psychoanalytic thought and Buddhist thought is that emotional experience doesn't have to be something that we push away. Mm-hmm. And there, there's often a tendency from the Buddhist side to think that emotional experience is a problem, you, you know, right. that, the cause, that the cause of suffering is desire, for instance, which is not exactly what the Buddha said, that attachment is somehow wrong, mm-hmm. that emotions are, uh, are destructive, it, you know, that in, in some sense uh, we can't trust uh, our deeper selves when the actual teachings of the Buddha, I think, run counter to the way that um, many people over the centuries have, uh, have interpreted them. Mm-hmm. And I think psychoanalysis in its own way 
is kind of refreshing for Buddhism because it's uh, willing to talk about the, the the wisdom really of intense emotional experience, not only joyful, pleasant emotional experience, but painful, angry, uh, libidinal emotional experience right. that that we can learn to navigate that and use it to. Uh, have a deeper experience of ourselves in the world. I think that's, you know, definitely something that's been written about and articulated by more contemporary Buddhists and particularly Buddhists that wed um, psychoanalytic or Western psychological thought with Buddhist ideas. And I think that there is kind of a misperception, perhaps, um, you know, and I don't know if I would say there are psychoanalysts who have the misperception, but this idea that there's been a minimization of aggression um, or the sort of, uh, you know, we're supposed, if we're a Buddhist and we're meditating, we're supposed to get blissed out and not necessarily um, sit with our natural, our drives, our tendencies, our temperaments. Um, I do think that's kind of a misperception based on what you're telling me right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, there are many ways to interpret any kind of uh, tradition, any kind of teaching. Uh, but w- one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to show how aggressive the Buddha really was mm-hmm. in in his own um, uh, spiritual psychological search. Uh, it, you know, and that, and I've tried to tie a lot of that into the the Winnicottian way of looking at the early loss of the mother, mm-hmm. in that it left him without a um, uh, a primary caregiver who could help him uh, uh, with his own aggression. It, you know, he was brought up to be perfect, really, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that's analogous to uh, how a lot of our kids are brought up. Right. Um, you know, not to talk about the loss. Uh, but, you know, everything was fine. He had His aunt was the mother who stepped in. He probably had wet nurses. He was brought up in a princely environment, if we want to believe the myth. And, uh, you, you know, everything was fine. But underneath was this kind of unsettled feeling that he couldn't really put a finger on, Mm -hmm. that when he finally renounced his world and went in search of himself, he had to work through an awful lot of what we would call primitive aggression. Right. And you can see that in the story, you know, in the story that's been handed down. If you're, if you want to look at it that way, you can see it that Mm -hmm. way. Well, following that, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, the if we're going to talk about it in terms of aggression, how mm-hmm. the Buddha turned aggression and sort of went on a self-attack, um, which I think we see with a lot of our patients, um, you know, enacting in, in many different ways, whether it's self-harm or anorexia or addiction or, um, I mean, these things are to help regulate emotions probably, but there's also a way in which um, aggression and feeling is misdirected and directed back on the self. Um, so when you talk about the Buddha renunciate, I guess being a renunciate and going yeah, out yeah. In, into the forests, what, tell me more about your thinking about that in terms of what he was going through. Well, the, the Buddha's teachings, you know, are, are known, um, as the middle way, mm-hmm. and uh, they're called the middle way because he actually found uh, something new. You know, he developed his own kind of therapy, basically, uh, which which uh, moved between the two traditions, which were already popular in his time. So those two traditions were basically you could you could get blissed out in in a transcendent way through various forms of yoga and meditation that were already part of the culture. Or you could be an ascetic uh, where you basically tried to free yourself of attachment to this coarse body with its desires and so on, 
by uh, subjecting yourself to all kinds of self-punishing kinds of practices. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were big traditions in the Buddhist time already, major teachers, major therapists, we would say, Mm -hmm. uh, of either of those traditions. And when the Buddha left his wife and young child, you know, he abandoned his son, Mm -hmm. much as he himself had been abandoned. Uh, When he left his family and went into the forest, the forest in those days was like going to California or something, you know, <laughs> to uh, to look for uh, the New Age. Uh, the forest was the unstructured environment of the time where uh, the spiritual seekers hung out, you know, outside of the constraints of clan and class and so on. So when he left the family and went to the forest, he studied with at first with great teachers of the transcendent blissful side mm-hmm. and he mastered those you know very very quickly and they asked him to stay and take over the uh, uh being the guru basically uh, which he which he um he rejected that cuz he felt you know as high as he got it still wasn't uh taking care of the underlying disease that he was feeling mm-hmm. um and then he embraced the ascetic practices. And in embracing the ascetic practices, if you read the descriptions, he sounds like a patient with anorexia. Right. You know, he basically starved Starved himself, himself to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or nearly uh, to death. Or nearly to death. Creating, and the, the, the thing that I w- tried to emphasize in the book is that when you work with someone with anorexia, as thin as they are, um, you, you, you know, as self-punishing as they might be, they're very, very strong individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, you know, it takes such work to to break through at all the the defenses, mm-hmm. you know, or the law, uh, the fortifications that an anorectic patient puts up around his or herself. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there's a real strength there. It might be misdirected in many of our views, but uh, but there's an attempt there to be so in control, you know, of oneself, of one's body, of one's desires, of one's time, of one's energy, to be so in control that the um, the inevitable disruptions of everyday life can't penetrate you, mm-hmm. you know. It's like being, uh, um, I always think of it as being above the fray, you know, sort of. Yeah, that's a good way. That's mm-hmm. a good phrase, I think, for what I'm trying to say. Um, and the Buddha became very much like that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, it, the interesting thing, you know, in reading his life as a, as a case history is that it was only at the height of his ascetic power, you know, uh, that he had a childhood memory. And it's the only mm-hmm. time that a childhood memory figures into the uh, uh, the Buddhist uh, scriptures. But he, he had a childhood memory just as he was falling over on himself through lack of food and water. And the memory was of sitting happily under a rose apple tree when he was probably, you know, nine years old or so, watching his father in the distance, a kind of Winnicottian distance, mm-hmm. not, not too near but not too far, mm-hmm. watching his father plowing in the field, when he was suddenly and spontaneously the young boy who was to become the Buddha, filled with an inexplicable joy that uh, you know, went through his mind and body. And uh, he remembers that joy at the height of his ascetic practices. And mm. he thinks to himself, he feels first, a kind of fear that comes in relationship to that feeling. And then he thinks to himself, and this is the self-analysis part that I like the most, mm-hmm. he thinks to himself, why am I afraid of this feeling? It's got nothing, there's, you know, there's nothing objectionable to this feeling. You mm-hmm. know? Um, but yet there's a sense of fear. So what's that fear about? And instead of going away from the feeling, he goes towards it. Mm-hmm. And he investigates it. He's curious about it, right? Uh, and uh, and he finds that oh look, this is a uh, it's a feeling that comes from within. It's intrinsic to my being. It wasn't dependent on, really on any external objects of desire. It's there, you know, part of my capacity, my feeling capacity in the world. 
maybe I've been going at this whole enlightenment thing the wrong way. Maybe the feeling is actually the key to the liberation that I'm seeking. Maybe I should try to cultivate it or at least give it a chance to be part of me with a body so ill-nourished there's no way to support this feeling. I'd better take some food and water. Mm-hmm. And then at that, at that moment, according to the story, a young woman uh, appears before him holding a bowl of uh, rice porridge, of rice pudding, mm-hmm. you know, symbolic, I think, if we want to reduce it to the breast, mm-hmm. symbolic of the breast, of the mother again. And he takes the nourishment and then uh, proceeds on his way has five great dreams and then sits down under the tree, under the famous uh, Bodhi tree and uh, proceeds to his enlightenment. Mm. And that experience of the childhood memory is thought to be the key to his middle path, to his middle way. Very interesting. He sort of um, gave himself a mother, <laughs> the mother that yeah, he had or lost. found the mother. You know, he found the mother within. That's why that Mongolian poem that I told you about at the beginning is so important. You you, you know, he found that maternal capacity, I think, with the same capacity that Winnicott talks about Mm -hmm. in The Therapist. You you know, he found that maternal capacity was still latent within him. It wasn't dependent on the lost mother, you know, actually. Mm -hmm. It was there in him all the time. And uh, when he was willing and able to embrace it, you know, to first be curious about it and investigate it and then to uh, take it as part of himself, then he could deploy it. Uh, and the, the deploying of that maternal capacity in, in Buddhist psychology is called mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So I guess I wanted to ask you more about mindfulness as a curative factor or as a, I don't want to call it a technique because it's, it's much more than that, but... Um, but first I wanted to ask you about this word trauma that's used Mm -hmm. because I think it's, um, it seems to be kind of an overuse and, um, the fear is I think that it can get watered down or it can kind of lose its meaning and certainly trauma, um, as you're describing, it seems to be very in line with the Buddhist, the, the word dukkha. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to hear you say a little bit more about that and what you actually mean by trauma. Sure. Well, the, um, um, the definition of trauma, you know, in the world of psychiatry is um, a confrontation with death or serious injury of oneself or of loved ones that... Um, Uh, fills one with unbearable affect, that fills Mm -hmm. one with, you know, feelings that are too difficult to bear, so that there's uh, an instinctive turning away from the feelings in order to prevent a fragmentation of ego or of Mm -hmm. self, or whatever you want to talk about it, in order to preserve the the ongoing sense of the self, Mm -hmm. the emotional experience is turned away from. And so that's the, that's like the trauma that occurs in war or that occurs in sexual abuse or that occurs in natural catastrophes. You know, mm-hmm. I sometimes think about that as big trauma. Right, capital T. Yeah, capital B or capital T. Um, and then uh, within the psychoanalytic tradition, I think stimulated by the work of Winnicott, but um, then talked about by Stolaro and, um, and others, uh, this idea has emerged of developmental or relational trauma, mm-hmm. uh, which is sometimes called the you know little t trauma, which is the trauma that we've been talking about that sometimes happens in uh, infancy or early childhood when there's a problem with the attunement uh, coming from the parental environment where uh, Uh, infants or young children are filled with a kind of similar unbearable affect, Mm -hmm. uh, feelings which, uh, for whatever reason, are not attended to adequately in a good enough way, as Winnicott would say, uh, feelings that are not attended to adequately. And so the child is left with an experience that can't be 
born that can't be processed. And so the child, in an analogous way, has to turn away from the unbearable affect and create a... um, you know, a kind of facsimile of a self that can that doesn't have to feel what is too would be too fragmenting to feel. Right, and I think you, Winnicott, and you re- refer to that as the caretaker self or the false self. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, and then in, from the Buddhist side, uh, one of the things that the Buddha emphasized time and again is the inevitability of change. That that change is one of the um, uh, one of the things about life that is ever present and that we can't do anything about. So that no matter how much we want to control things, and no matter how advanced we become, and we're very advanced in controlling many aspects of our experience, uh, we'll never be able to control everything. So that death and loss and natural catastrophe and uh, things not going our way. Uh, that that is going to be part of our human experience, and that the feelings that that um, that, that causes uh, he called dukkha, mm-hmm. and and dukkha literally means hard to face. Dukkha, cause face, mm-hmm. and do emphasizes something difficult. So uh, there's an aspect to life the Buddha said which is hard to face. There's another aspect that he called sukha which is sweet to face, you know. So he's not saying mm. that there's not joy or happiness or whatever, but only that it won't last, can't last. So the, this other aspect, which is dukkha, which is traditionally translated as suffering, which is kind of a poor translation, I think, mm. it, it connotes more of a sense of unsatisfactoriness that is um, intrinsic to our experience as embodied humans, you know, in this world, um, uh, there's an aspect that the Buddha called dukkha that I'm saying in the book we could also think about as traumatic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, throughout the book, um, you create a connection between Winnicott's concept of the emotional stance of the, the good enough parent or caregiver um, who can soothe and mirror the infant child and how mindfulness creates another version of this container. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you say more about that? And I guess ultimately my question goes in the direction of then is trauma something that we can, I mean, people with who have really suffered um, very bad effects of trauma, is that something that can be healed? Well, I think it depends what you mean by healing. Right. Um, when, uh, you, you know, the, um, that article that you liked in the Times mm-hmm. where I'm talking to my mother, you know, uh, the thing that you picked out of that is, is the sense that uh, really it doesn't have to heal mm-hmm. uh, in order to heal. You know, that, that grief can go on forever if it needs to and become part of us because it is part of us, because we all uh, either have or are going to experience just those kinds of feelings which are evoked in a moment, in a crash, you know, in a horrible uh, experience uh, for some people who experience major trauma, but that experience of major trauma is not outside of the uh, potential experience of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we all want it to be. We all want to think, oh, that's happening over there to those people, and I feel so bad for them, but it's not happening to me. And we create um, uh, that kind of division, you know, mm-hmm. uh, between our experience and other people's experience because we're all secretly afraid that it is us. Right. Um, but what the, what the Buddha was saying and teaching, I think, was that it is all us, you know, others, other people's experiences are our experiences, just as a mother or a father feels their precious child's uh, emotional experiences to be there. Mm-hmm. And that a, a good enough parent is relating to their baby uh, in just that way. They sense the emotional difficulties. They sense the feelings of the child before the child even knows what's happening. 
mm-hmm. and there's a very delicate and beautiful dance, you know, mm-hmm. that has been reduced to being called mirroring, which I don't think does it justice, um, uh, whereby a parent makes the traumatic emotional experiences of early childhood tolerable for that child and that infuses the child with a sense that emotional experience doesn't have to be dangerous you know? right. and that intimate experience can actually be enriching uh, even though it can sometimes be very difficult uh, as those of us in intimate relationships know. Right. It fills us with you know, all kinds of feelings not only beautiful passionate ones right. but the but, um, and I think that goes that same that same um, way of thinking holds for the traumas that we're all afraid of that uh, you know the big traumas that are happening in the world uh, instinctively we want to separate ourselves from mm-hmm. them but we have that maternal capacity that the Buddha found in himself we all have that ability to um, to relate empathically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a writer named Leslie Jameson. Who oh, yeah, the, book, empathy uh, exams. Uh, the Empathy Exams. Yeah. And she talks about, uh, she says something in that book about how trauma bleeds and bleeds, you, you know, so it, it doesn't stay in one locale, you know. We're all, we're all feeling each other's traumas. And that's what ultimately is healing, if there is any healing, is... Um, not to feel that you're all alone in the singularity of, you know, the horrible thing that has happened to you. Right. But that, in fact, this is a human experience as, as um, painful as it might be and as distinctive as your own might be. It's not that everyone's is the same. Right. But uh, we don't have to relate with fear and loathing to uh, um, what, what each of us uh, ends up going through. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I guess I, as I was reading um, through your material again and just, I guess, sort of pondering the world we're in right now or the historical moment we're in right now with um, just seems like a you know tremendous amount of violence. And I mean, maybe no more than there ever was, but certainly through the media and our access to information, we're, we're somewhat bombarded with... Um, very, very difficult things going on in the world, things people are doing to one another. And I think that um, the danger is for some vulnerable people could sort of go into despair or go into nihilism or meaninglessness. Um, So I I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Um. Well, the Buddha had a lot of thoughts about that, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, he was he was very aware of that tendency to uh, retreat into a stance of meaninglessness or or nihilism or mm-hmm. despair. And um, part of the, uh, I think, the beauty of the the middle path that he found was that. Um, our hearts uh, are big enough to hold the suffering uh, that surrounds us, you, you know, mm-hmm. that um, uh, whether or not there's more suffering happening in the world now, which I actually doubt, right. uh, but we are, I think, uh, uh, aware of it in a different way. Uh, we're, we're, we're aware of it. Uh, in the entire world, you know, through the media rather than just in our immediate environment. Yeah. Um, uh, so sometimes that can feel overwhelming. Um, but I think those that the um, uh, the falling into either despair or um, uh, basically trying to shut it all out um, is a kind of retreat from how embedded we all are, uh, in, in this world that, that we are a part of. And, uh, the, the sad or, um, compassionate really feelings Mm -hmm. that we, that are evoked 
by uh, all the suffering around us if we're willing to um, uh, allow those feelings to percolate then they can give us direction in terms of how we choose to live uh, our own lives right and how we may choose to act um, and and take action because the you know the traumas that are inherent in life and in aging and illness and death and those things that are just really part of the human condition there are in social injustices and there are structural injustices that traumatize certain people perhaps more than others you know certain types of um, you know racism or homophobia and I wonder um, you know it's just just a thought that I have that. Um, it's also important to be able to act in the world and in ways, maybe this is just a value, but to act in ways that you try to bring about some justice. Yeah. Oh, of course. I I think that's, that's one of the basic questions that people have about the, the Buddhist approach. They often see it as, um, uh, uh, somehow anti-action, you know, mm-hmm. because there's such an emphasis, I guess, on, on meditation. People think that Buddhism is the same as meditation or that, or that meditation is all that the Buddha taught. Uh, but the, the, the Buddhist teachings, you know, his famous teaching, the first teaching was about the Eightfold Path. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, mindfulness was just one of the eight limbs of the Eightfold Path. And he, uh, uh, action, right action, or helpful action, realistic action, um, was it was another equally important aspect of his teaching. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it is true, you know, if you look at, at Buddhist history, um, uh, the in the cultures where Buddhism took root, they pacified themselves to a degree that um, uh, uh, making war and conquering territories uh, uh, were not their primary uh, concern, mm-hmm. and they did make themselves vulnerable to uh, invading, warring uh, peoples who uh, ended up destroying the, uh, you know, in, in medieval India, destroying the great Buddhist uh, universities and cultures that grew up, mm-hmm. and even in present day, in, in present day Tibet, the uh, the way that the uh, communist yeah. Chinese were able to take down a great Buddhist culture, you know. Right. Um, they, they, they were able, they, they did it very quickly, at least in terms of conquering the territory, mm-hmm. not necessarily the minds and hearts. Mm-hmm. So would you say, I, I, would you say that that's more of a, of a Western Buddhist sensibility? The, I mean, you're saying it's part of the, the right action and social justice is what I'm calling it as part of it's embedded in Buddhism, but um, it's more of a feature of contemporary Buddhism. I don't know that it's necessarily embedded in Buddhism. Okay. You, you know, B- Buddhism was uh, in its history. It's been as, uh, you know, horrible to women mm-hmm. as all the cultures of which it was a part. Right. Um, so it, it, um, it wasn't able to uh, uh, transform uh, in a way that looking retrospectively we might have wished. Um, but it was definitely, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings were revolutionary in mm-hmm. a social and political way um, in his time. He, he took the word um, noble uh, for instance, and and used it to talk about his uh, noble truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, instead of saying that people who were born into the Brahmin class were the noble people, he said that uh, uh, people who could actually understand and accept um, the uh, I- importance of uh, compassion for all people, those were the noble people. You know, mm-hmm. so he he liked to take the uh, he was um, uh, uh, very, in, uh, in, in, in his own way, revolutionary in terms of changing people's consciousness. Um, that, that only went so far if you look at, uh, you know, the way the, the, um, the nuns are, uh, were treated, um, you know, yeah. totally second class. Uh, so, uh, you know, even in Buddhism, there, there, were, there could be problems. Well, as you said, it's sort of a 
a reflection um, culture um, in yeah, the well, time. It, tried to transform. it transformed culture in a certain way, uh, and it, it reflected the culture in, mm-hmm. uh, in, its, in, an, in another way. I mean, it's part of the culture. Right. Well, um, I can't believe it, but we're actually coming to the end of our 50-minute hour here on new books and psychoanalysis is sort of, uh, shocking. Um, but it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Mark, and, um, for you to spend this time with us today. And this has been a really big treat for the listeners. Um, I'd like to thank you for being here. And, um, do you have anything, do you know what's next for you in terms of writing or, projects um the only thing that i know is next in terms of writing was i i uh, on on my last uh, the last retreat that i did the last silent retreat that i did the uh, the phrase uh, uh, advice not given mm. uh, came came through my head and um and i thought oh that's an interesting phrase to uh, try to write a book around very so interesting we'll see, if, we'll see if i'm able to advice do anything advice that. not given i generally <laughs> i generally don't um with 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 my patients which is what i primarily am doing is you know psychotherapy i generally don't push the buddhist side of things mm-hmm. uh, i try to uh, i try to just be their therapist in whatever way is helpful right um so uh, that that might be the virtue of not giving advice, or or there may be advice that would be worth giving. We'll, yeah. we'll have to see. Very interesting, and you heard it here first, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, so once again, thank you so much, Mark. When you do have anything new that you you know you're working on, we would absolutely love to have you back um, and to talk to you some more about. Um, your new books as they come up. And I want to say to the listeners, uh, goodbye for now. And please stay tuned for upcoming interviews. Um, Stay tuned. Thanks and bye for now.